So the question is, will the rhetoric, will the change in intellectual ideas carry through and produce a change in actual policy? I think there is a tendency for that. That's one source of optimism. But I think a much more uh, reliable source of optimism is the growth of the Internet. In your area, the major, factor, the major effect of the Internet will be to make it harder for government to collect taxes. Governments can collect taxes best on things that don't move. Mm -hmm. Land is an ideal basis of taxation because you can't take it away. Yep. <clears throat> individual states cannot go as far in taxing personal income as the federal government can because people can move from one state to the other more, re more easily than they move across countries. <clears throat> the Internet is going to make it very difficult to collect taxes on services of all kinds. After all, you can complete these transactions in cyberspace, not on the ground. You can, uh, you can, uh, uh, computer companies now are getting their uh, programming done in India. I doubt that anybody's paying any taxes on any of that. No. So that I think that the Internet is going to be one of the major forces for reducing the role of government. The one thing that's missing, but that will soon be developed, is a reliable e-cash, a method whereby on the Internet you can transfer funds from A to B without A knowing B or B knowing A, the way in which I can take a $20 bill and hand it over to you, and there's no record of where it came from. And you, you may get that without knowing who I am. That kind of thing will develop on the Internet, and that will make it even easier for people to use the Internet. Of course, it has its negative side. It means that uh, the gangsters, the people who are engaged in illegal transactions, will also have an easier way to carry on their business. But I think that the a tendency to make it harder to collect taxes will be a very important positive effect of the Internet.
Welcome to the Noted Bitcoin Podcast. This is Michael Goldstein, aka Bitstein, with my co-host Pierre Richard. How are you doing, Pierre? Great, Michael. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, today we have a very special guest, Representative Warren Davidson from the 8th Congressional District in Ohio. Um, Warren, you, in my opinion, uh, made history um, by uh, adding the term shitcoin uh, to the uh, congressional lexicon. Um, so it's a real honor to have you here today. Yeah, it's, uh, it's not necessarily uh, uh, an accomplishment my family's most proud of, but it's something that's uh, a term of art in the space. And I think the people that are paying attention to this space uh, probably appreciated uh, the lexicon. I think it also does, uh, for, for those in the space, uh, it, it signals quite an astute understanding of the space. Uh, because while, while it's a uh, profane term to people who are not in the know, uh, to those in the know, as you described in the, like during the congressional hearing, um, it does have very specific um, implications uh, as to what it means to be, uh, uh, you know, decentralized versus centralized, et cetera. Yeah, and I appreciated the feedback that I got afterwards. I think, I think uh, the surge in Twitter followers that I had, uh, I'm not sure that the people that follow me on Twitter are representative of everyone in the 8th Congressional District, but they at least agree with me on a lot of my positions related to uh, the token economy. I, I've long said that uh, being pro-Bitcoin is one of the easiest ways to uh, win at Twitter. So um, just uh, to, to get a little, uh, you know, to get to know you a little better, uh, what got you into Bitcoin? How did all of this start? Well, so my, uh, my interest in the, the space, digital cash, uh, probably goes back to like DigiCash. I mean, so when you look at, um, you know, pre-recession um, movements of money, uh, you know, there was a span of time where it was very hard to move money between the United States and China, and I was in manufacturing. So we would have these big lags where we wire transfer and people would say, well, we can't ship the goods. We haven't received the money. And you would say, well, you know, we've already we've already paid and here's your bank received it. Well, it's not hit our account. You know, all the standard way that the system works now. And, you know, what, what really goes on in the back end there sometimes is uh, governments are taking their time to validate everything, make sure they know, gee, why is this money moving? Who's moving it? Are we okay with this? Should we, you know, uh, process this request or should we follow it? Should we report it? All kinds of things. But in the meantime, you know, the people that are just trying to accomplish commerce uh, are, are frustrated in the norm of legitimate, com uh, in their conduct of normal legitimate commerce. So you start looking at ways to move the money. And then ultimately, uh, the U.S. did approve things through China. Recession hit and... Um, you know, Bitcoin launched. So it was like, wow, okay, that's the killer app, um, you know, for, for a lot of, a, a lot of the needs for swift movement of money, uh, a sort of value. And, uh, and then of course, you know, things have followed pretty swiftly. Was there a, a particular time period that Bitcoin had come on your radar? Yeah, probably I didn't, I wasn't like, uh, you know, paying attention to it right after like in the earliest years, I probably didn't pay a lot of attention to it till 13, 14. Okay. Yeah, so when you, when you look at, uh, when you look at my time in Congress, I didn't get elected until 2016. So when I got into Congress, you know, what people were talking about, I'm on financial services now as a committee 
And so what really got a lot of interest in the space there as a legislator was, um, you know, frankly, the blow up in the ICO market. And really when, you know, to this day, as the last time um, Jay Clayton was in, my, my point to him was, uh, yeah, I'm talking about fraud in the ICO market myself, uh, but the problem isn't that, you know, every company that wants to launch something needs to go through the SEC. We need a law. And, uh, you know, normally when you look at, you know, what's the root cause? Well, there isn't regulatory theory here. So there are people attempting to pull off regulatory arbitrage. Uh, and then there are other people that are just bad actors and they're coming into the space um, and it's easier to deceive people because there's not a clear law in the space. So uh, that was the reason I started working on this uh, in Congress. And so didn't build momentum until, you know, 17. And then in 18, we had the big roundtable that really got the momentum that has ultimately produced the Token Taxonomy Act. Yeah. So could you tell us a little bit more about uh, what the, to ta sorry, the uh, Token Taxonomy Act entails? Yeah, so in, um, yeah, after pushing for, for hearings to do more than study it and learn, hey, this is what Bitcoin is, uh, here's how to use a wallet, um, we said, you know, they're not talking about what the space needs. You know, people are trying to understand it and they're going about it in a way that would be akin to, you know, Congress trying to figure out what seven layer security protocols were for the Internet before they decided to regulate the Internet the way they did. They didn't try to understand all the technology of how the internet actually operated and why they should do this and whether it was really going to be a thing. They just realized, hey, this is going to be a thing. We need to have some regulatory clarity. And we passed and Black Capital formed and, you know, America became, you know, the world's hub for the internet economy. Uh, in the meantime, while we've been at the cutting edge for all the other stuff in the space for blockchain, uh, you know, you, you keep having these discussions where people are trying to still figure out what is a blockchain? And, uh, and instead of saying, no, the space needs these things. So as a, as a new member of Congress, I can't really you know, convene hearings. I can't schedule uh, committee rooms, but I, I could book a room. So I booked a room at the Library of Congress in September of 18. And we started inviting people. And the goal was to get about 20 um, key leaders in the industry and just have a log and say, you know, what is, what is the, you know, lowest common denominator that everyone needs to provide some level of light touch regulatory clarity. And I'm on the, you know, more libertarian of the Republican party. So, you know, I'm, I'm not an anarchist. I'm for some laws, but I'm not for big heavy regulation that basically protects market share for, uh, for other things. Not, it, it, you know, even if that's not the intent, it has that effect. A lot of times, the heavier the regulation, the bigger the advantage to the incumbents in the space. So, uh, so we had that roundtable. We went from 20 people to people started sending their CEOs and they said, oh, wow, the CEO of, you know, say Ripple or whatever is going to come. So, okay, well, we'll send somebody from NASDAQ and well, okay, well, somebody from NASDAQ's coming, we're going to send our general counsel. And well, if these guys are sending their general counsel, we want our CEO to come. So we started ratcheting it up. We had a cap at 50, uh, but we had, you know, the biggest names in the space. Uh, at the event, and then people frustrated because they couldn't get in. But if we went higher than that, we wouldn't have had you know good participation. So we had the dialogue, and we came out with the light touch. And basically, it's to say, look, a big part of the problem is there's no law. Another big problem is the SEC is regulating by enforcement, and they're basically telling every company in the space or thinks they might be in the space, come talk to us, and company by company, cut your own deal. There are literally hundreds of companies waiting for no action letters. Only two have been approved. It's, uh, as I say, all the charm and efficiency of a third world power structure. 
So uh, it is pretty broken. And then, you know, of course, there's tax implications and, and, a, and a couple other things. And so this bill does that light touch that became the consensus out of that roundtable. One of the interesting things to me about the Taxonomy Act is the fact that um, it's actually it's very nonpartisan and there's uh, uh, input um, and sponsors from all across the political spectrum. Um, can you tell us more about, you know, why, why is it that this is a nonpartisan issue? Yeah. Uh, so when we were at the roundtable, I mean, you, you know, the companies in the space, I mean, on on average, these aren't uh, these aren't uh, right wing Republicans. Uh, and in, in general, you know, there's a more libertarian bent, but a lot of these people aren't political at all. They're just, you know, techies or venture capital people and, and kind of a, a, a eclectic mix of those. Uh, and when we were doing the roundtable, it came out like, well, there really isn't a gap in ideology here. It's just a gap in understanding. Do people understand what we're trying to do? And, you know, to the extent that I've seen some level of gap emerge, it's actually more uh, on an authoritarian versus libertarian scale than a left-right scale. It's should the central go, should there be a central authority, a government that can review every transaction? Can they have, I mean, this is essentially the premise for the centralized, you know, clearinghouses. They like having the status quo where there's a central hub there's somebody that the government can turn the screws on and they can say, well, you got to give us a backdoor key so we can look at everything. Or, you know, if you spy on your customers really well, we'll let you keep operating your bank or money service business or exchange, whatever. That status quo is is threatened uh, by a, a totally distributed ledger. And, you know, who, whomever uh, Satoshi Nakamoto is. Uh, an individual or persons, they understood this clearly. And so, you know, they did it in a way where it was not, no, there was no attribution as to, as to the, the people that created it. There's no way to send a subpoena to the headquarters of Bitcoin, for example. Uh, and that's really the tension in the space. People that want the central authority and people that say, look, the, the distributed ledger is, is already a thing. It's going to be a bigger thing. And uh, we might as well do that in the United States of America and learn how to do, um, you know, public uh, public versus private keys and figure out the on and off ramps. And even in an authoritarian power structure like China, they are paying attention to how, uh, how do they follow a, a, a true distributed ledger because it's more secure. And uh, but but on the on ramps and off ramps, there is a way to say who can get in and who can get off. Uh, and, you know, you guys know that well, a lot of your audience probably does, but most of my colleagues don't. So philosophically, um, it sounds like your view would be that, you know, money is free speech. Is that fair to say that, like, you shouldn't have um, some kind of prior restraint on how you spend your money or what you decide to do with it? But rather, like, if you actually end up doing something nefarious with it, then that nefarious act is what is illegal and what you know, should be criminally prosecuted, not the fact that there was like money flows beforehand that, you know, weren't approved or something. Yeah, the idea to make money criminal, I mean, this is really the premise of the Safe Banking Act that just passed the House. Hopefully the Senate takes it up. You know, you have a huge number of states that have had the upfront debate on whether marijuana should be legal or illegal, right? And, you know, on average, some version of legal seems to be winning. The majority, overwhelming majority of states have some form of legal marijuana in their state. Uh, but then other people want to kind of go and backdoor, make it illegal and say, well, you know, you're not going to bank those people, are you? And then, 
not just the direct people in the marijuana business, but the people that might sell fertilizer or even make a more uh, lend a more uh, do become a mortgage lender to somebody whose payroll is from that derived income. Uh, and I just think it's wrong to kind of uh, the government anyway to backdoor say you know you're not going to bank those people. And the reality is, if it's legal on the front end, then you shouldn't try to backdoor do it uh, on, on the uh, on the banking or financial services end. Uh, on the other hand, if it's illegal, then okay, it was illegal. Right. It seems like, you know, money laundering became a crime in and of itself that, like, eventually just becomes detached from the underlying, uh, it, you know, harm that is actually happening to, to people. Um, but uh, I remember um, Ken Rogoff, he wrote a book about banning cash, essentially. And he is a proponent of doing that, um, and he's kind of... Uh, seems to be mostly centrist, but pretty authoritarian. And his view is that uh, if governments don't have total control over the financial system and it's not a complete surveillance panopticon, then they won't be able to uh, both execute on monetary policy, but also on uh, fiscal policy in terms of you know putting on a 70% tax rate and doing a pretty... Um, I would call it, you know, expropriation more so than taxation, but uh, being uh, be, being able to uh, enact their sovereign fiscal powers. Um, and so to him, like cash is not possible and especially not Bitcoin. Yeah, well, it sounds like he's uh, he's inspired my colleague, Brad Sherman, who thinks that the only reason to have cash or Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency is to launder money or evade taxes. I mean, clearly you're a criminal if you do either thing. Uh, so this is crazy. And what do they want to do? They actually want to criminalize doing either thing. So, um, and, you know, the reality is if you look at some of these dystopian futures, whether they're, you know, books uh, of fiction or books that, you know, some would call fiction, I consider scripture, but, you know, you look at uh, Revelation, uh, there's a future where people are missing financial services, essentially, unless you're one of the special approved people. And I think that's a horrible future state. We should always, say, you know, money is freedom, and uh, and so you know you you know by all means have the debate. If you say it's illegal to you know buy you know internal combustion engines, uh, and you ban the the sale of internal combustion engines, then by definition, paying cash for an internal combustion engine would become illegal. Uh, but right now, it's legal. So just because you're offended that somebody would operate a, a gasoline-powered engine instead of a battery-powered, uh, you know, you know, system, then you, you can't go backdoor make it illegal. It, it seems to be part of like the wider uh, like deplatforming cancel culture, where you know, and it's funny. The latest example of this is uh, the Chinese Communist Party with the NBA, right? Where they're saying like, hey, if if you if you give your employees the right to free speech, then we're going to boycott all your stuff and we're going to ban your all your businesses from from the country. Uh, so it, there there's like uh, concerted efforts to censor uh, around the world from both private actors, whether it's the left here in the U.S. or the left in uh, China. Oh, uh, uh, absolutely, and really, there are people that would want to do it from the the right ideologically. It's really like I say, it's an authoritarian versus libertarian you know, mindset. And look, if you want to defend freedom, you have to defend money. 
And, um, you know, uh, Ayn Rand was, uh, has got a number of good quotes, but, you know, the famous uh, speech on money from Atlas Shrugged, you know, when the destroyers come, they always go after money. It's the story of your value. You look at what's going on with um, central banks around the world, and they're destroying the value of money. Even in the U.S., when you look at a 10-year, uh, 10-year treasury bill that's at 1.5%, you believe that the 10-year inflation rate is below, while the non-rate is still positive in the U.S., um, the real return on a 10-year note would be negative, presumably, right? And in other countries, they're pricing it already negative. I mean, there's negative yields on banking. Um, and so you wonder why would people have an interest in a store of value? And, um, you know, gold obviously moved up a lot. Other stores of value have it. And when you look at, you know, you know whether it's right or wrong, one of the things I look at is how do you properly value a Bitcoin or a, any, any number of other tokens uh, when it, it really is a representation of a store of value. It's how confident am I that this uh, is actually secure and I will be able to access it into the future. And well, right now I'm this confident. And, you know, for some reason, it, uh, and, you know, we can have discussions about that. Why did the why did the volatility show up? How did that happen? Why is it settled where it is? But, you know, you can look at the futures market and uh, it's working the way futures markets work. On that note, why do you think that it was so much easier to get Bitcoin futures through the, the CFTC than a Bitcoin ETF through the SEC? Are they fundamentally different regulator cultures? Uh, yeah, clearly the difference is the uh, tradition in the SEC. Uh, let me go back to this Howey test, which is a Supreme Court decision. And everything starts to look like a, an orange grove. Uh, and uh, they're, they're testing oranges from the 40s <laughs> and uh, the, instead of really understanding what they're doing. And, you know, on the, on the commodity side, uh, they just kind of looked at it and said, yeah, you know, we could actually do this. And once you started getting the, the, the futures loaded up, you look at the, you know, Chicago regulator, um, all of um, the activity that went into that. You had people that were going to make markets. Uh, for these uh, for this trading activity, and they normally aren't holders of uh, of Bitcoin, and so when they that created a short term demand for them to hold it so they could make markets, uh, and you saw you know a, a surge in price because uh, you know no longer in sync in terms of the rate of demand and supply, so it it inflated the value, but then as uh, as the markets were made and they didn't want to hold, they cleared their balance sheets back out you see it drop down and stabilize. So even the market isn't as volatile as a lot of people projected. It's not that it's a stable, easy to model uh, system, but you know, you look recently when Bitcoin was trading at about 11,000 and you look at the futures market, the future futures market accurately predicted that it was going to drop down into the low eights. And so that's, that's how futures markets work for other things. So having a futures market has actually been great for, uh, you know, for this particular token, I can't follow the other ones. Uh, but, you know, frankly, uh, th as I say, there's a reason the term of art shitcoin was coined, right? It, it's uh, there, there any time that essential authority can control, um, just like a central bank, the, the amount of uh, the supply of money, uh, the rate that it does or the rules with which it does, uh, you know, trade, uh, then you can manipulate the value in some ways, whether that's willfully or, you know, accidentally.
And and so when when you don't do that, then you know, to me it it has better features, and that's what we tried to capture in the token text with a digital token. And to say, look, if you want to be treated as not a security, uh, you know, it has to have already been created. It has to be um, it has to be uh, on a distributed ledger that is not controlled by a central authority and does not require a party intermediary uh, to facilitate a, a transaction. Uh, it, it can't be a um, it can't be an interest in an entity or a corporation, for example. So um, there there really aren't very many uh, tokens that meet that test. And so when Libra came to the Hill, which finally helped us get a more meaningful hearing, uh, though lots of uh, my colleagues really just focused on Facebook, at least we had some meaningful dialogue about Libra. And then thankfully, Chairwoman Waters actually held a hearing after that with with some other industry experts. And that's where my dialogue with uh, Milton Demors, uh, Demers had, uh, had, the, had the phrase that you guys referenced earlier. What do you make of uh, the Libra Association seeming to, to lose members at this point? And some people have said it's because of the government scrutiny that they received after the announcement. Well, I think they just, if they paid attention to the hearing, any, any idea that this isn't going to be treated as a security in the United States went away. I mean, it's backed by securities. By definition, it's going to be treated as a security. And the, even if you go and say, oh, oh but it's a nonprofit, you still have a security. Uh, and in their case, they're going to peg it to a basket of currencies. If that central authority decided, you know, the Venezuelan people are noble people and we have to prop up the, you know, Venezuelan currency, well, that currency is going to, it's going to hurt the store of my value, right? Well, on the other side, if they eliminate a currency and change it or whatever, they're going to be able to change the value. That gets at the whole issue of, um, you know, what's the nature of central authority and if that central authority is able to manipulate the value of it, how do you not treat it as a security? How do you not have, I mean, you have to be able to go back to that um, entity uh, to be able to say, hey, if you're lying, cheating, or stealing, somebody has to be held accountable because you're taking advantage of other people. And so, you know, you go to the most fundamental reason why government was instituted, uh, it was to protect people from one another. It was to say, look, when you, you know, commit an act of aggression uh, against this other person, uh, instead of convening a council, we're going to have a government that will protect, you know, these these men from these other men. And at the most basic level, um, you know, this violates that principle because you can you can cause damage to someone else's property by exercising the very nature of the central, even if it's to make it less secure. And that's one of the problems uh, underpinning all of this is is identity and privacy. And so I think to, if we were structuring this rationally, we would first fix our, our um, identity and privacy issues in the United States, and then we would get after the regulatory framework. With regards to, um, you know, in the act and trying to define a security, uh, decentralization plays a large role in that. Um, what would be the ways in which Congress could define decentralization. Um, I think in the cryptocurrency space, I think different projects would take um, different positions on what it means to be decentralized. I would argue partially because uh, certain coins uh, want to act as if they're, uh, they are decentralized when they actually are not. Um, what would Congress do um, to better sort of outline from the U.S. government's perspective 
what is decentralized and what is not almost on the technical level if possible. Well, yeah. So, you know, I think, you know, I won't say that we have it down perfect in the token taxonomy act, but I think the criteria that we've listed there, um, you know, make it, make it, uh, fairly clear. But when you, when you look at it, uh, when you want to validate the transaction, the people, um, that are, you know, the most passionate in the space, uh, perhaps are the XRP folks that say, oh yeah, this is decentralized. Right. And, and a lot of people say, no, it's not. And they say, yes, it is. Um, when you get down to the underlying piece, it's how do you validate that the person uh, is who they say they are? Um, and that kind of pushes a lot of people back to that central central database to be able to say, yeah, we do know this is the identity that claimed that it was, uh, was there. Uh, but, you know, obviously Bitcoin solves that differently. And to me, um, that's all the difference in the world. Uh, it, it, and you can't have the ability to um, approve or disapprove by one central authority uh, a, a transaction and then say it's decentralized. I mean, it, 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 the whole nature is it's centralized. It, and uh, in a distributed ledger, it would have to be an agreement across the whole ledger. Uh, and in a centralized system, whoever's got control of the central clearinghouse for it could, uh, you know, exercise a veto on a transaction and it just kills it. So, uh, for example, if you wanted to kind of create a backdoor for FinCEN to say, uh, we're only going to review the illicit finance transactions. Well, gee, how would you do that? I mean, they probably won't admit it, but the reality is the only way to actually do that is to review all of the transactions. And then, and then only approve the ones that you uh, believe at the moment not to be illicit. And then how much due diligence do you take? Well, you need record keeping to do that. And in both cases, you could do that. It's just more of a change from status quo to go to a distributed ledger uh, than to stay with the centralized system that they have today. Um, and I, I think that's just one, one way to look at it. Is if you think about it and say, could any entity, whether it's a corporation or, you know, my proxy for all of it is FinCEN, uh, Financial Crimes Enforcement Networks, part of the U.S. Department of Treasury, um, could actually review every transaction on this system by themselves, then it looks centralized to me. That makes sense. And so what do you think the reaction would have been if uh, Facebook had come out and said, we're, we're not doing a new currency. What we're doing is we're adding Bitcoin to Facebook with our Calibra wallet. Um, and there's no notion of having a stable coin at, at all. Um, do you think that, you know, and look, if we look, uh, Square's Cash App uh, added Bitcoin and there were no congressional hearings called uh, over it. Uh, it just kind of went under the radar. Do you think that uh, Congress would have called hearings if, if Facebook had limited their announcement to just saying they were adding a wallet that would be, a, a, it might be like Bitcoin and Ethereum or whatever, but um, they, it, they weren't creating a new currency. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I hope they try it because it'd be a way better idea than Libra. Uh, this is the same uh, with a lot of these other people, you know, Apple Cash. I'm like, I oh, just use Bitcoin, you're good. But, uh, you know, so when you think about, when you think about, um, why I think you 
would be right is, yeah, it's just another company doing the same thing that's already been done. On the other side, Facebook doing anything today, as you saw in the hearing, a lot of the questions weren't even about Libra or even an effort to understand Libra. It was really a, a question of it. And when you go back to the idea of centralization, this is another way that fails in the proposal, not just with the, the database. If you think about the pressure that Facebook has been under, part of the beauty of them having the idea of Libra, to me at the time, uh, while I don't love Libra as they proposed it, um, it, it highlighted all of the potential problems because Facebook already does that, right? They filter content uh, relentlessly. And some people say with bias, some people say it's great, they're protecting my safe space and everything and whatever. Uh, and so you're having the, the whole thing. They want filtered speech or free speech. Do we want filtered transactions or freedom? I personally enjoyed, for instance, on CNBC, uh, uh, Joe Kernan on Squawk Box uh, throughout this Libra thing, it we got to watch in real time as Joe came to understand Bitcoin uh, by virtue of seeing the problems with Libra. Um, so I think that really did have a ha have that exact effect on um, these sort of financial people watching um, these hearings. Absolutely, that's a that's a perfect example. And having spoken with uh, with, with Joe. Uh, before on a number of interviews, just seeing his views on on the space evolve and about Bitcoin in particular, um, you know, that's absolutely and I think you know right on target. I mean, referencing and it helped crystallize that that uh, understanding in a number of my colleagues as well. And we had some kind of small group dialogues that went pretty deep in advance of that hearing, and I think it crystallized for a few. More the other side, it also crystallized for some of the people that want the central authority. Oh, gee, that's why we should hate the di distributed ledger and we have to stop this. And, uh, you know, Brad Sherman's even more committed to stop all crypto and cash. This, by the way, is is why I considered uh, your, your comments uh, a, a historic moment because it drew that line in the sand. Um, so that any future discussion do have to contend with these basic facts. And, you know, like you're saying, some on on perhaps a more authoritarian bent uh, will readily accept those premises um, and take them seriously. Um, but the good thing is, is that everyone's on the same page. So we can have this like stark, honest discussion about what it is that we want in society. Yeah, I think so. And I think the next layer is, is the idea of monetary policy, because you know, some people went there in the idea that this nonprofit was essentially going to function in a, in a very similar way to a central bank. Uh, when it's a small startup, people don't kind of visualize that as even a real idea, right? Uh, or this mythical uh, creation of a pseudonym. They don't sort of visualize that as an even future state. But when you look at the kind of uh, presence that Facebook has around the entire planet, it's pretty easy to see, gee, if all the people accessing this platform use this as their currency, we kind of are starting to talk about monetary policy and a lot of the same ideas that go to it. And uh, I think that you know has pros and cons in terms of where people want to go because around the world, central banks, i.e. centralized systems, are fairly popular. And the idea that the government wouldn't be able to influence that store of value is scary to some of my colleagues. Uh, and, and so what I tell them is, look, you, got, you do have, go back to where Clayton is, you do have to look at what is the proposed idea behind a given token. Not everyone aspires to create something that's, a, that's, a, that's essentially a currency. Libra was proposed not really as a store of value, but as a, as a currency, as a real means of payment. 
uh, and in that sense has similar aspirations to what XRP was, whereas you know some other things might be better viewed as a store of value. To me, that's easier to make it's a commodity. And then clearly many things in the space don't aspire to any of that. They're just representations of a good or a service. Right. Gift cards. Uh, and so on, on the note of, of Facebook, do you think that they are powerful enough that they're becoming a sovereign, essentially, and that adding a currency is part of that? Well, I think uh, I certainly consider them sovereign. I mean, if they are, then the, the trust buster people do have a case to make. I mean, you know, even even, uh, you know, the, the Gilded Age people uh, never got ambitious to consider themselves sovereign. Right. They they still consider themselves part of the United States economy or part of the global economy. They didn't say, gee, we're on our own sovereign thing. But, hey, it's a virtual world. So uh, we're going to rule it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, maybe Google and Facebook do, you know, when they're when they're alone in private committing not to be evil, um, they do have those aspirations maybe, or even, you know, maybe even have that reach. Um, but, you know, that's kind of, kind of philosophical, I guess. But when you look at what the government's role should be in that, I, I, I do think that it would threaten the status quo. So when you think about... Uh, someone, someone I was just following, I was following on Twitter this past week, posted, you know, just think in ten years' time, um, and I would say maybe closer to fifteen, the the uh, camera, basically, everyone uses cameras on their phone. You kind of got to be, you know, pretty into photography before you're taking a significant amount of pictures with anything other than a phone today, right? Um, and it, and his question was, what will be the next thing that's obsolete, and one of the things that I thought of is, I don't know, hopefully not the U.S. dollar, maybe a currency, though, broadly, uh, and maybe maybe the petrodollar is the next thing that goes. You know, the idea uh, of um, a synthetic currency, which is really what Libra is, it's a proposed synthetic currency, uh, is almost the exact same idea that Christine Lagarde was proposing when she was the head of the International Monetary Fund. Um, and frankly, the representation behind that was going to back Libra was essentially the same basket of currencies only with a twist where it's going to be uh, stabilized somewhat potentially or to me destabilized potentially uh, by short-term securities. If I remember correctly, uh, John Maynard Keynes's Bancor idea was also very similar to this. Correct. Yeah. So it's not like a, you know, Lagarde's uh, original idea, but she was actually working towards it prior to becoming, uh, you know, ECB uh, central banker. From the point of view of the, the U.S. dollar being a global reserve currency, I think one of one of the points about it from a geopolitical point of view is that it is a source of power for the United States, right? And it allows us, first of all, to, to finance our deficits uh, unlike any other country in the world um, and to kick the can down the road in terms of our, our national debt and, and all of that. Um, also arguably has been blamed for gutting our manufacturing industry, which, uh, you know, from, from the effects of, of this inflation. But also um, from the perspective of foreign policy, you know, one of Brad, Sherman, Brad Sherman's points was that uh, the dollar allows uh, the U.S. to exercise power uh, abroad, whether it's through the payment system and being able to, uh, you know, impose sanctions on other countries. And Having the dollar be the settlement currency is is crucial to to exercising that power at, at scale against 
you know, a country like Iran, uh, and that if the U.S. were to abdicate that power or have that removed from it with uh, a decentralized system like Bitcoin, that that would hamper our ability to, uh, you know, do good in the world from the perspective of these people, uh, even though obviously there's a, a longstanding debate about U.S. foreign policy. Yeah, I mean, it's a fair point. So, you know, you you get all the highlights. I mean, there's no way we would have uh, an ability to spend money the way we do today without being the world's reserve currency. I mean, uh, it, you know, you, you can look around the smaller countries of Europe post-recession, uh, you know, Greece, Portugal, Spain, any number of others uh, around other parts of the world that have run into issues when they look at debt as a percentage of their GDP, you know, crossing over 100%. Uh, when you look at, you know, I don't know, spend 25% more than you generate in revenue every year, that 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 would normally send off alarm bells when you do that every year. year and there's no model you quit doing it. Like normally people would say, uh, you want how much for your treasury bills? Uh, <laughs> no, 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 not one and a half percent for 10 years. Not a chance, buddy. You know, they would want a, high, a bigger premium, but we can pull that off because because uh, we are the re de facto reserve currency. And and you make a great point in terms of our ability to do sanctions, um, not just because I mean, we, we have the world's largest economy, so we could do that anyway, at some level, but the effectiveness of it is heavily balanced because everyone has to get their balance of payments straight. And so many of these dollars end up having to flow through U.S. financial institutions uh, to clear and, and settle the balance. And it, that's part of the appeal of synthetic currencies, right? If you're one of these big global com companies and you look at the Forex market, how uh, one of the biggest hedges in the world is currency risk, right? So there's an appeal to not have to worry about that as much. Uh, from some of the biggest global companies, but uh, but if there's also the appeal of bypassing, you know, also foreign control or things that could get flagged for sanctions violations, and you know, I, I don't want to dismiss out of hand those as legitimate concerns, but do you really believe that that other countries uh, aren't working to bypass that today using um, distributed ledger technology? My view is we're much better set to have the innovation here in the United States. It's the same. We were able to do all kinds of great things uh, over the internet and still uh, do because so many of the communication nodes around the world are running on U.S. technology and flow through uh, our hubs and routers, right? Switches, all that stuff, uh, cable that we've laid, all um, accessible in some way, shape or form more so because the innovation happened here. And when you think about um, what's going on, the US's ability to influence distributed ledger technology is diminishing by the day because all of this innovation that is often originating here in the United States um, is moving offshore um, to take advantage of, not to avoid our laws, but to find some laws, find some place where we know with certainty how this is going to be regulated and treated and uh and and that's where it's flourishing so it's not a heavy lift to say gee we have to create a regulatory framework that solves every possible thing we didn't do that for the internet frankly we still haven't we still haven't dealt with identity and privacy uh you know well after we should have um but we did get some of the framework right up front and that's what's missing most urgently 
uh, for for the blockchain economy. One of the common criticisms of Bitcoin is is the energy consumption. Do you think there should be additional regulations around that, or that uh, it's basically people should have the right to spend their electricity however they want to? Yeah, I mean it's like any other good or service. I mean, if you want to pay for it, I mean it's not free. You know, some people believe that energy should be taxed differently or should be priced differently or whatever. Um, I think that's where you have that debate. But to say, gee, you can't use this structure, I'm paying for it. You know, why, why should you decide I can't? You're going to you literally you're going to you're going to ration my ability to use electricity now. And there are people that want to do that. There are people that want to ration the toilet paper, too. So you can't use more than one square. Right. And I think they're all crazy. <laughs> Well, they're they're doing it to save us from boiling the oceans. So, uh, you know, they're doing us a favor in their minds. It, it's all it's always such nice, noble intentions, and, uh, and and there's a way to change that. I mean, ultimately, if they wanted to do that, just pass a law and raise the taxes. I mean, has it really made people not drive in California because they're paying higher gas prices? No, they're they're somewhat price insensitive to the to the fuel, even though it's substantially higher. Uh, there's still demand gas. They just price it into the cost of living in California. Um, they might be slightly more likely at the lower end of the socioeconomic scale to take public transit than to use a vehicle. But for the most part, it's, it's just priced into the cost of living in the local economy. And I think that's what would happen for energy uh, on balance. And, uh, and, and, you know, around the world, you would see the same sort of arbitrage opportunities people do. I mean, you look where is Bitcoin flourishing today when you look at mining activity? A lot of places where you can do, you know, geothermal or hydroelectric have an advantage over other other locations. Because if I got to buy, uh, you know, spend a lot of hours off of uh, an expensive power plant in, you know, pick your place, uh, then well, it's hard to beat hydroelectric. Just need some nuclear reactors. I think uh, going back, though, like uh, with the sort of foreign policy concerns um, and and sort of uh, or the, the concerns around uh, the, the the waning of say the petrodollar or other you know ways that the, the dollar is used as a, a sort of power mechanism I think the other side that you know politicians ought to be considering is um, when the dollar is or any synthetic currency is you know wielded in that fashion it does have an effect on that nation's citizens themselves. And so, for instance, in the United States, there has been a, you know, strong decrease in the incentive to save. Instead, we live in a very, you know, obviously uh, credit-based economy. Um, and if it's the case that this Bitcoin thing is just happening, whether, you know, Brad Sherman wants it to or not, um, it's, it's in the American interest, I think, um, for Americans to be um, investing in Bitcoin, which is representing one of these few opportunities they can use to actually save money for the future. Well, savings, uh, savings is smart. And, uh, you know, recently, recently I, I posted a graph about the projected revenue and projected expenditure of the U.S. federal government. And it's basically if something can't continue, it will eventually stop. Plan ahead. Right. And the the U.S. is not going to be able to spend a trillion dollars more than we earn every year in perpetuity. And lots of people will say, oh, well, then why did we cut taxes on anyone? Well, the reality is revenue is still going up. And it's a fair point to say, oh, but we can make revenue go up faster. 
But the reality is, if you listen to everyone in, in American politics that talks about, well, let's raise taxes to bring revenue up, it's always to pay for some new spending. You know, free college, free health care, free, it's the free economy versus freedom to me. Um, and it, it, it's, of course, not free. It has to be paid for. So there isn't a plan to raise the revenue number, number at a level that would pay for the current level of spending. And the reality is, when you, when you look at it, if you go, the math problem I always like is, you remember back when you're first learning, uh, you know, early days of math, and you're like, you know, when will Johnny catch the train? And if you're on the same axis and the train departs the station going seven miles an hour or say growing at 7% and Johnny departs going three miles an hour, when will Johnny catch the train? Never, right? Because the train's going more than twice as fast as Johnny. And in the U.S. economy, that's the fundamental problem. We are spending at a rate of growth that is more than twice as fast as the rate of revenue growth. And when you say, oh, but we're going to just raise the revenue by raising the taxes, you can see that the economy actually grew more slowly under that system. It grew at one and a half percent. People say it's juiced by all this stuff, but what's been, you know, take home pay has gone up for the average American. Uh, entry level wages have risen over 10%. Average wages have risen over 3%. There are more jobs available than people to fill them in the United States. People can switch jobs and get better careers. All these are great things for everyday people, but that system isn't going to be able to continue because either we're going to have to raise the revenue uh, without raising the spending, or we're going to have to cut the spending, or we're going to go into default. And when that happens, there's no good outcome uh, for people's present wealth. It's going to decrease the, your, your personal net worth at every level. And even if you say, hey, the billionaire is worth you know, uh, is worth half. Like you say, you're $4 billion, now you're only worth $2 billion. Well, if your net worth is, is uh, 80,000 and you go to 40, you're going to feel that a whole lot more than the billionaire, right? It's only, it's only $40,000, uh, but it, the standard of living at 40,000 uh, bucks uh, of total net worth is way different uh, change than, gee, I, I, I've only got 2 billion now, right? And so, you know, there's there's a, a political rhetoric that's really populist in America, and it, it is uh, across the political spectrum, uh, but heavily on the left, to, to do wealth shaming and all this stuff, and we're going to tax this wealth and all this other stuff. At none of the tax rates combined with the spending plans, is there a way to actually pay for it all? And so, um, you know, that's that's one of the things that gets to the heart of uh, what you're talking about. Why is it important to save? Why is it important to plan ahead? You get disaster preparedness. Most people don't even have, you know, two days of food in their home. Uh, you look at the, 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 cha the challenges of that. But conversely, if you look at the world's second largest economy, China, uh, they're savers. You know, now I don't know, you know, how many, how many days of grocery in China. It's very urban. So people a lot of times go down and get stuff for today. But their savers as a percentage of their net worth is, is, uh, is culturally just very different. And when, uh, when disasters come, when the destroyers come, and they destroy uh, your unit of exchange, as has happened in countries around the world, uh, and you don't have to pick small countries like Venezuela or Argentina, you could look at Russia's economy. Soviet Union uh, was, uh, at the time when I was in high school in the 80s, 
uh, the rival to the United States, right? They were also the superpower. And, you know, the, the reality is after the Cold War and the, the wall came down in the early 90s when the Soviet Union broke up and became Russia, they, they basically went bankrupt. It wasn't Chapter 7 like Blockbuster where it was Chapter 11 where they had to restructure some things. And they've basically spent an entire generation working their way back onto the world stage. Now, an American uh, default or an American Chapter 11 bankruptcy might not look exactly the same, but it's going to be painful and it's going to be especially painful for the low-income families in America. So, uh, do you think that there's any... Um you know, obstacles in the way for just American investors to be, and, and by investors, I mean, just kind of any, any ordinary American um, to engage with Bitcoin in this sort of fashion and sort of this savings and um, hedging against the worst, whatever the worst might be. Yeah. I mean, I think if you go to your standard uh, exchange, you, you know, they have all your know your customer provisions and stores of value. If you're a business and you have a treasury function and you say, we should prepare for a rainy day. Maybe we shouldn't hold all of our assets in U.S. dollars. And you look at what should you hold your assets in. I don't know. You could make a really smart case for working with a company like Fidelity and putting a store of value there. There just aren't a lot of lot of uh, options for corporations to really have somebody become a custodian. And that's one of the issues token taxonomy deals with is what is custody. And again, some people in their current definition want to use a third party to define Oh, well, you have to have a custodian and they have to do all the same things that work in current securities law and due to the nature of the distributed ledger. No, like the whole point is you don't need an intermediary. And but then you look at, you know, companies like Coinbase, for example, that uh, are your traditional entryways for uh, kind of a retail person to go, you know, purchase Bitcoin. Um, if 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 you look at political risk as your biggest risk. What happens to the store of value in your wallet? What happens if they say, oh, well, we can't prove this, that, or the other thing? They've got all the same pressures that the rest of the economy does for the U.S. So that's formed a small niche of people that basically sell or develop hardware wallets. Um, but even those could, could, in theory, be blocked from accessing the IP addresses that they would need to do it. And uh, But then, of course, there's some ways you could use VPN to spoof whatever and uh, but if you can't if you can't spend the the store of value that you've got stored, it's not it's not incredibly useful. So uh, I, I remember you know some conversations I had with some preppers back uh, you know uh, you know years ago, and they were talking about the downside of gold because what what can you use it for? And they started looking at ammunition as a store of value because uh, it's it's more fungible. You can actually trade you know, a smaller increment of, uh, you know, whatever grade of ammunition for goods or services, whereas, you know, say an ounce of gold in and of itself is, is trading at, at a level that's hard to do. And if you think Bitcoin, of course, that's why Satoshis were created, is to have a smaller, more incremental uh, medium of exchange. But you still have digital ways to control that versus physical space that sometimes is there. So people price that risk in and it's priced into the but absolutely, I think you know probably the most important thing people could learn is how to how to save. Uh, and you know, time value of money uh, is is one of the most basic ways to think about that. What what happens if you save time? What caliber of ammo do you think would be the most liquid? Nine millimeter? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think if you look at the most ubiquitous ammo 
uh, I think nine millimeter is. And in the U.S., of course, there's a large market for five five six and two two three. There is a difference. It's very important uh, for for users of those uh, types of ammo to differentiate. And if you move beyond that, seven six two and three three zero eight are also big. Um, but you know, of course, governments are ahead of the power curve, and there's a current debate in the military about switching from either of those grades to something that's say six and a half or six point eight millimeters. They want something with more punch. Yeah, I mean, if you look and more punch, and also just uh, what's currently in the market um, potentially. So, uh, but yeah, if you look at the stopping power versus weight, I mean, the the reason that the five five six developed um, was that you know uh, the soldier's load. Could be, which that's what I did before when, when I was out of high school, I was a, was a soldier. Uh, and, you know, the, the load that you carry, uh, you can carry, you know, say 300 rounds of ammunition uh, and they weigh less than 300 rounds of 7.62 ammunition. Both uh, will effectively wound a soldier, which actually uh, is in some scenarios more effective than a killed in action because it creates a need to save that person and ties up more soldiers. Um, other scenarios, obviously, you want to just a clean fatal shot. And so for that, they're looking at, you know, basically force equals mass times acceleration and like mass and acceleration, which the combo of the math equals bigger force. Gotcha. I, I think one of the other uh, obstacles is also just IRS, you know, treating, you know, dealing with capital gains uh, makes it very hard to be more liquid with Bitcoin if you come to a point where you decide you wanted to uh, divest some of your investment. Um, suddenly you have a huge tax burden. Um, even if it's a small amount, like you just want to buy, you know, a t-shirt or something. Yeah. So that's one of the other features of the bill. Um, when you look at it, it treats it as, as a property. And then you have a de minimis exception the same way that you have for currencies. Uh, you know, if you say we're, you're an American and you want to go to London, you, you, you exchange some pounds sterling while you're still here in the U.S. While you're there, you decide, ah, I want to go down to Paris, so I'm going to get some euros. As long as the total sum didn't change by $2, uh, then there's no capital gains. The challenge is for your average person, they don't even worry about that for vacation, for example. But when you're moving large sums of money, um, you, you have to keep you know, better records of that. And as you have a bigger store of value and you start to use, say, Bitcoin, the way a lot of people are using it as a store of, uh, of wealth, um, if you're in and out of, out of that, then you could end up with recognition problems or, you know, change in your basis. So how would you calculate what is your real basis in the coin if you just know that in my wallet, let's say in, in my wallet I had, um, you know, $100,000, right? Um, well, did you just buy that all at once or no? See, that's what I've accumulated for over the past five years. It's boom, 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 boom. And you, you would have to know uh, how to do that. And it's very structured in terms of how that happens in terms of stocks. Uh, but um, it's not as clear how that would happen for, uh, you know, digital assets. And so I think uh, that that uh, the record keeping aspects of that are, are aren't adequately understood by a lot of people and that creates a, a fear of regulation that doesn't adequately address all of it uh, in, in, uh, on behalf of some of my colleagues. So tax is one of the ones that is a little stickier and it's hard because in Congress, the jurisdictions are broken up. So technically we need a waiver on financial services 
from the um, Ways and Means Committee to deal even with that de minimis exception because it's outside our jurisdiction. It might be easier just to abolish the IRS. That's a very popular idea. Um, and, you know, I think if we got rid of the 16th Amendment, it would be a more good. Uh, we would still need to raise revenue as a, as a government, but I've I've got a hierarchy of, uh, of, of the worst taxes. To me, the death tax is the worst uh, because you've got taxes on all this your whole, whole life. And then you go to property taxes and the federal government doesn't generally collect any property taxes. Uh, so, uh, but, but that's essentially, you never actually own your property, right? You're, you're effectively just leasing it, uh, but granted it's at a low rate, so you tolerate it. Then you go to income taxes and think of all the things that a government has to know about you to collect income, which thus, you know, the 16th Amendment, just down from that's payroll taxes. They have to not necessarily know all of your income, but they at least know that you got paid. So you have payroll taxes. Um, and, you know, you look at sales tax, you don't have to deputize everyone in the country or everything about everybody. But at least the businesses that sell things um, are now essentially deputized as agents of the government to collect uh, taxes on sales. But consumption taxes, on average, are, you know, not not nearly as onerous as the things I've mentioned up till now. And so to me, they, they're they're way more favorable, but they're cyclical. And that's why governments like things like property taxes, because they're they're always there. And then even as, as it's been in the news in the midst of our uh, ongoing trade negotiations, um, tariffs and and uh, excise taxes, taxes at the border, uh, were were um, some of the earliest taxes. That's how our government was, our federal government was funded in the earliest days before the 16th Amendment, um, because you didn't have to deputize very many people, just the customs brokers at the at the points uh, of entry into the country, and then you could tax things at the border. And so it, it actually is the most pro-liberty version of taxation uh, that could generate revenue for the federal government. So you look at the hierarchy of it, and I don't know. I think we could do a lot better than the current system. Conversely, uh, at least a couple of candidates in the Democratic presidential primary field have proposed actual wealth taxes, which are you know worse than income taxes, but and maybe even worse than the death tax. I don't know. It's like well, it basically, is a death tax before you died, right? It, yeah, but it's a little bit every year. Uh, so. It's, so the idea that if you're, uh, it's like, oh no, it's only for these people. Well, it was only for the wealthiest people when the income tax was first initiated as well. And so, you know, the idea, let's just keep it at a million bucks. And it's, uh, I think one candidate's at 5%, the other is at 8%. But let's say the 8%, at a million bucks, and you've saved that for your lifetime, they're going to take 80 grand from you every year. And if you think about the whole point of this, it would be like, okay, I saved a, I saved a million dollars and I thought, gee, as long as I earn 5% from my savings and investments every year, I could live on $50,000 in perpetuity, right? I'm good for retirement. Not if this passes, we're taking five we're taking that 50 grand straight off the top every year. So now you got to do, you now to get your 50 grand, you got to find something that performs at 10%. But of course you got to pay taxes on that extra earnings too. So everything about it's bad. Very important that we're all poor. Yeah, exactly. Representative, how do you think that we can uh, turn the ship so that instead of talking about a wealth tax, we're talking about repealing uh, the income tax? And it seems like you know the direction is always in direction of more, more government, more taxes, and 
Uh, we're just waiting for the whole thing to collapse. And some of us have even gone into accelerationism and arguing that, you know, we should actually spend more money so that it collapses faster. But um, how, how do you... How, you know, how do you see uh, things getting better? Well, uh, it's funny you mentioned accelerationism. That's uh, that's that's probably more popular than a lot of people realize. I, I'm I'm convinced that some of my uh, colleagues in Congress won't publicly acknowledge it, but they're for every kind of spending in the world. They must be closet accelerationists uh, because there, there's no way that many people believe that deficits don't matter. They say it, but I, I'm like, I can't believe that you actually believe this is true. Uh, you must be an accelerationist. But uh, so, but if you look at the cash flow models, realistically, 2027 to 2032, um, it really, we, we don't generate enough uh, positive cash flow under any of the models and the, and the timing is in that range. We're going to have to restructure something, right? And so I think that's a window to say, what, what should our government look like? And I think that's also important why, um, People that want a more limited form of government at, uh, frankly, the federal level, and I think that's the right level. I mean, it, the reality is if you've got a, a more burdensome government at, at a state or local level, it's easy to move. It's harder to move countries and nationalities. And I believe that's the system our founders actually created is a very small federal government and actually much more powerful states. And a lot of that started to change. Uh, historically with the passage of the 16th Amendment, which is the income tax, and the 17th Amendment. Prior to the 17th Amendment, senators were sent to Congress uh, by their state legislators. Uh, so the legislatures in the states still sent them for six years at a time, but they were accountable to the legislature. And so they didn't want the federal government to become more powerful because that meant the state would be less powerful. And the other part is prior to having the combination of the two, if the federal government ran a deficit, the states were on the hook for that balance. So there was a check against the growth of government at the federal level. And at the state level, the check was, gee, if it's just absolutely heinous to do business in this state, I don't know, maybe we'll put the business over here. And because of the federal framework and the Commerce Clause, you could do business across state lines. And it promoted a very healthy, competitive landscape with not no regulation, but uh, with with regulatory clarity uh, that benefited everyone. Today, um, I, you know, I hope that that future is uh, just around the corner. Uh, more and more, there are some wins that we've gotten in the, the three years I've been in Congress that make full that uh, that can happen, but none of them are on spending. Spending is definitely uh, dominated by the accelerationists. To be polite. <laughs> So uh, we, we've crossed over the, the hour point and uh, I want to respect your time. Um, you know, I, I thank you again so much for coming on. My, my last question for you is, uh, you know, are there more representatives that, in, that are into Bitcoin? Um, and like, how many, how many of you exist? Well, you can see who the, spon the, the uh, sponsors and co-sponsors are of the bill. And not all of us are big fans of, of Bitcoin per se. Um, the first member to publicly disclose owning uh, cryptocurrency that I know of was Tulsi Gabbard. So, um, and I and right, and unfortunately, she didn't have any bitcoins in her holdings. She, she had no bitcoin. It was Litecoin and Ethereum. Litecoin and Ethereum. So, so yeah, she might be kicking herself. Yeah, uh, probably, probably on some of that. I don't know when she bought or at what price. Uh, and like I say, so I. 
there are a lot of us that are steering clear of those things because they're so early and because we're actively working on regulating them. So while I believe Bitcoin is phenomenal, uh, you know, my interviews with somebody like Joe Kernan and go on the squawk box and they say, well, Congressman, how much Bitcoin do you own? Uh, they're really different than I go, well, you know, I'm doing pretty good. I'm up about 600 percent, um, you know, and my portfolio looks like X, Y, Z. That's a very different look, even if it were totally legal and ethical for me to buy it. Um, than saying, well, you know, uh, I don't I'm in the process of regulating it, so I don't think it would be ethical for me to own it. Uh, and so that's the place I've landed. Personally, I feel like um, the opportunity cost for me being in that position in my current role is pretty high because, uh, you know, I get a nice look at a lot of things in the space. We're looking at it. There are some companies that I've seen that are just absolutely phenomenal that I would love to own every bit of that the founders would let me purchase. <laughs> and, uh, and so uh, contrary to the public perception, Congress is not actually exempt from antitrust law or uh, insider trading laws. So we can't do those things. And it's a good thing. Well, you could buy some Bitcoin and lose it in a boating accident so that technically you don't own it anymore. But um, yeah. Well, and, and, and for, to be clear, um, I, I could buy Bitcoin today as long as I only trade on public information. And, you know, right now in particular, I mean, I'm in financial services and you would think that the Commodity Futures Trading Commission would be regulated Congress by the Financial Services Committee, but that's actually in the Agriculture Committee. So nothing about CFTC falls under the jurisdiction of my committee. So in theory, I could trade Bitcoin and Bitcoin futures all day with no conflict because I don't even have jurisdiction over it in my committee. But the public perception of that would be very different. Um, my last question is, how do you think Bitcoiners should lobby Congress? Uh, what's the most effective way for constituents to, uh, to, to make sure that their representatives understand that Bitcoin's important to them and that they want to see uh, you know, the government, at the very least, not uh, impinging on their, their rights further than that's already happening? Yeah, I think one of the most important things uh, to influence Congress is to schedule meetings with your representatives, right? Um, you know, not, uh, not not just the online click this, not, uh, you know, phone calls uh, are, are great. But work hard to get to know the district staff and uh, invite them to events in the district, uh, wherever that district is, and then, you know, get on their calendar. So when somebody shows up on my calendar, um, I've got a staff person that briefs me about it. I've got notes in my calendar that prepare me for it. Sometimes I'll go in with uh, with having had a, a briefing or presentation ahead of the meeting. And then subsequent to that, depending on what the leave behind material is, uh, if it's a very focused meeting with a small ask, uh, it's easy to have a dialogue about, you know, what that the nature of that meeting is. And so I think, you know, A, educate and inform as many people in the district staff as you can, invite them to every kind of event so that more people uh, that are influencers at the staff level understand the space and understand the urgency and then, you know, have organized meetings to come in and do that. And not every small entity can do that, but, you know, the uh, trade associations are starting to become bigger and people think, oh, well, that's lobbyists. And, you know, there's some icky lobbyists. It's called the swamp for a reason colloquially. Um, but there are a lot of things are just like this where, hey, we have an interest in this. 
so now we formed a trade association and we hired somebody. I'm busy starting companies. I'm busy doing whatever, but we want that person to go do it. So that's why I donate, you know, a thousand bucks a year or 2000 bucks a year to my association. And that pays the wages for some staff to go schedule the meetings that maybe you can't go to. Uh, so all that comes together to, to uh, at least inform folks. And then the, the real one-on-one -on -one meetings do help influence the agenda. And I'd say, particularly in the House, if we can target Chairwoman Waters, uh, you know, Chairwoman Carolyn Maloney, who's the um, Capital Markets uh, Subcommittee Chairwoman, uh, and, and Steve Lynch, who's the leader of FinTech Task Force, um, there would be the most uh, key people right now in the House. Are there rules around uh, buying a stake for district staff or for representatives? Like, uh, how much can you spend on dinner? Uh, the the answer is uh, from lobbyists, none. Uh, I mean, unless it's a widely attended event, which uh, the, the rules are stupid and complex. And so generally it's like, no, nah, I'll just pay for all of it myself. I don't want any of this. <laughs> so it, it, it's, uh, it's like if you're if you're at a widely attended event, which is, I, I don't know, 20 people, 25 people, something like that, uh, they could serve, um, you know, uh, for free. Any, any number of things, and, and but if it's like a one-on-one -on -one thing, even if it was like a, a, a little four-piece chicken nugget thing, then... Oh, we'd never do that to you, no. If a lobbyist paid for it, then that could be a problem. So, <laughs> so yeah, and if it's just an individual, if you've got a pre-existing friendship, then it's there. So on balance, that's not really the best way to do it. And uh, the, the good news for me is when I've seen the money in politics, overwhelmingly what I've seen is it's more like missionaries. If you're familiar with that, somebody might say, hey, uh, I'm a Christian and I think going to Zimbabwe would be great. And I want to tell these other people about what I believe about faith and all that. And somebody else hears about that and go, oh, that'd be really cool. I think that's great. I would love to donate, you know, 200 bucks to that or something. And for the most part, politics works more like that than it does like the most nefarious perceptions that you might expect from, say, Frank Underwood or watching the TV there, you know, which is, uh, you know, pay for play. And, you know, gee, if you took this position, we could cut a check for this. And uh, yeah, I mean, there's a reason. There are stereotypes, but uh, overwhelmingly what you see is people steer clear of all that stuff. Thankfully, uh, we have we have quite the zeal when it comes to Bitcoin. And hopefully hopefully people will listen to this podcast uh, around uh, Congress. And uh, I, I do believe that you're the first elected uh, uh, official to come on a Bitcoin podcast. So um, it's been quite the honor to talk to you. Yeah, it's an honor to talk with you all. Thanks for the interest. And uh, hey, more people get involved with our great government is amazing. I mean, I go back, like I said, I enlisted in the army out of high school. I never thought I was going to be a guy doing what I'm doing today. Uh, and, you know, it's a great I, I'm, I'm I'm assuming kind of to go to the other end of the political spectrum. A bartender barista from Brooklyn probably never thought she was going to be a member of Congress either. So we have an amazing system. Uh, you know, people will listen if you can get on their calendars. Uh, not everyone will comprehend, but enough people hopefully will soon and we can pass some good laws in this space. Where are the best places that uh, people can find you online if they want to learn more about you and the, your, your act and everything else that you're doing in Congress? Okay, so davidson.house.gov is my official website. Uh, that'll link to you know all the official you know, Twitter, Facebook, uh, mail, 
fax. I think we even have a fax machines still, email, uh, online forms and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, just warrendavidson.com for other stuff if people are interested. Excellent. Well, thank you so much uh, for coming on. We really appreciate um, all of the time you've given us. Yep. Thanks again. And uh, good luck with the podcast. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. How important is purpose, reason, or cause in being successful? Like the perp, your purpose. Right. Well, clearly purpose and reason and cause are extremely important. This is this is the why of of your actions. This is knowing why you're doing what you're doing. This is the commander's intent, and so you you absolutely absolutely these are important. If you don't know why you're doing something, well then let me ask you a question: Why are you doing something? <laughs> it does. It's it's very clear. It's very simple to understand. So, yeah, you got to know if if you don't know why you're doing something, then what what are you going to do when you hit an obstacle? You're going to stop. What do you what what adaptations are you going to make when things go wrong to overcome them? You're not going to make any because you don't know why you're doing it. Yeah. So if you have no reason, if you have no reason for doing something, you're not going to do it. So you got to have a long-term goal we got to understand the underlying purpose of what you're doing now this doesn't necessarily mean that it mean that it has to be rigid because mm. it doesn't have to be rigid you know I'll tell you a, an interesting case as an example I'll give you is my own case mm. <laughs> right so of course you know I'm all about planning and and always having a long-term plan and all that stuff but to be honest with you the situation that I'm in right now as a human, mm. I didn't have a long-term plan for this. You know, mm. the 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 I you know Leif and I wrote the book. I had no intention of writing a book. That kind of happened, you know, because people were asking us, and and as we worked with businesses, they said you have this stuff written down. So we ended up writing the book. Mm. Once we wrote it, we thought maybe we'd be handing it out when we go and work with companies. Literary agents saw it today. Let me let me show this to some publishers. Publishers saw it said let, let us publish this. Okay, so you figure you're gonna publish it. Well, even when you publish a book, you don't expect that a bunch of people are gonna read it. You expect that you're gonna have a book published and that's cool, but it ended up doing really well. So that kinda happened. With that, all of a sudden I was on a couple of podcasts. Well, I didn't you know, I didn't have any intention when I went on Tim Ferriss's podcast, I didn't say to myself, This is gonna propel me into my own podcast or Joe Rogan's podcast. I didn't say, Now, you know, Joe Rogan's gonna launch me into the podcast world. No. Hmm. I didn't expect that, but it happened. And you know what? It happened, it made sense to me. Okay, these two guys are squared away. They're squared away in this particular genre and they're recommending, my mind is open, okay, let's try and make a podcast. Did I know that the podcast was gonna be super popular? No, I just thought we were making a podcast so that you know the few people would wanna listen to it, cool. For, I mean, then look what happens. Next thing you know, we're, we're making tea. You know, <laughs> next thing I'm making tea, I, I had no, no idea mm. that that tea <laughs> would be part of my world. So th th all this stuff happened, right? But but the goal, really the underlying, the reason for me doing all this is still the same through the whole thing. And that is that I wanna help people. I wanna help people with something that, the, the lessons that I've learned, I wanna help them. So how can I do that? Well, you write them down. Okay, you wrote it down so people can read it, great. How else can you help them? Oh. You can make a podcast so people can access it easily and cheaply. Cool, here you go. So the underlying goal, oh, you know, I want people to be healthy. Well, what's a good way to be healthy? Stop drinking monster energy drinks. 
stop drinking Red Bull 12 a day mm-hmm. and start drinking something that's healthier. Oh, okay, cool. Jock away tea, next thing you know. That's what we've got going on. So yeah. it's it's that's been my that's been my goal. And I haven't really, even though I've even though I strayed from what maybe the original path I thought I was gonna take, I still stayed my reason is the same. And I think that that's what I'm saying. When your reason is clear and your purpose is clear, that's gonna make your drive clear. And that's gonna make you execute well because you know where you're going, you know you where you wanna be, you understand your purpose and why you're doing something, and that's what's gonna help you be successful, in my opinion. Do you think that like how um you know, people, they'll be like, this is my why, and it'll be like their kids or something like that. Do you think that falls within this? Like, you know, like reason, purpose, and all this stuff. Yeah, like, I think I think that that's the same. The same general. The guy could have said purpose, reason, cause, why. I think that, that yeah. Yeah, the question could have said that. I think that if your purpose is your kids, really clear example, right? And a lot of people might say that. Well, that's cool, but that's you're gonna to have to clarify that a little bit more because right. if your purpose is your kids, then quit your job and just spend all day with your kids. Well, then right. obviously you're not supporting your kids because now you can't afford to buy them food. Yeah, it's like, it right? seems like there's a lot so, of different. So your, your goal should be taking good care of and providing for your children's now and in the future. Wow, okay, now that makes sense. Now you're looking long-term, short-term, you gotta, you know that you have to work hard now, you don't have to make investments for them, so that that's right. the kind of thing. That's beyond just a simple, I'm doing this for my kids, because right. what are you doing for your kids? What are you trying to achieve for them? Yeah, so like, for using that example, like this is my why, it's my daughter. It's less, this is why I'm, you know, I don't know, writing a book, it's more this is why I can endure the hard days, or this is why, I'm going to continue to work hard kind of thing at whatever it is I'm doing. Yeah. You just thing. have an underlying, yes. An underlying reason. That's, that's the question. And I think that's the answer. Yes. Yeah. It's pretty, I actually, I should have just answered that in yes, two fully. words. I should have said how important is purpose, reason, cause and being successful answer. Very, very important. important. There yeah. you go. You can have a lot of different reasons too, you know, or like a, a few core more than one. Yeah, you know what I'd say, if there's anything to be taken away from this question, it is if you don't feel, here's the, here's, I would say the takeaway. If you don't feel some kind of drive in your life, if yeah, you yeah. don't feel passionate about something, if you feel like you're wandering and meandering through the world, then it's time to assess. Then it's time to say, okay, what is my reason? What am I trying to do? What would I like to do in yeah. the world? Now we get something valuable here. Yeah. We all know that you gotta have a purpose. You all do gotta have a reason. So if you feel yourself meandering down the path with no reason, no purpose, dig in and find one. 